hello everybody. I know some of you are just here for your regular afternoon drinks, but that's going to be disrupted by this event. Um, we'll start in about a minute or so. Start in a minute. No, give them a minute to finish talking about the debates. One minute and then we'll get started. Actually, you, you guys pay way more attention to you than my students at Northwestern do. I'd like to kind of mention that. So maybe we should just start now. That would be great. Welcome, everybody. This is a program that was 18 months in the running, in the planning, right? Yes, again. At least. March 17th, a year and a half ago. What a good day to start. What a good day to start. Actually, we anticipated doing this program in Chicago, not in Highwood, but I think Highwood is a great place to be. Yeah. So, I'm Catherine Lambrecht. I'm with the Highland Park Historical Society, as well as Chicago Food Boys Roundtable, which is part of Culinary Stories of Chicago, which nobody here cares about except me. Oh, yes, you are. Sorry. And, oh, okay, we fell in civil war. And the Highwood Historical Society. Yay! Of which there are far more board members from the Highwood Historical Society here than from the Highland Park Historical Society. Let's not get in there. Oh, no, no, that's my shame. They're happy. My shame. But I thought a program on drink and the prohibition, pre-prohibition, post-prohibition, really needed to and be here. During and during prohibition. And I would like to make a small comment. I was 10 years old when I moved to Highland Park. That was in the early 70s. And I remember a family that I was friends with would come every Friday night to score tobaccos, and they would have their CC Manhattan and dinner. And that was a really big deal. And they didn't pay. They just signed, and they got a bill at the end of the month. I lived in suburban Washington, D.C. I never saw anybody just sign in a restaurant, but that's just me and my ignorance. Anyway. <laughs> I'm here to alleviate that. And you're here to alleviate that. So Bill Savage, all the way from Northwestern <laughs> University. <Woo. laughs> uh, thank you all. Um, I want to begin by saying thank again uh, my credentials for being here. I teach in the English department at Northwestern. I teach Chicago literature, Chicago history, which means teaching history of prohibition and of bar and saloon culture. Um, but I really think my most important credential is my family having been in this particular business for four generations. Um, I tended by myself for over 30 years. Um, and that thing about signing, I could get into, but I'm gonna let it go. <laughs> could mean a lot of different things. Um, and I want to thank you all for being here, first of all. Um, as at least a few of you in the room who are academics know, academics love to talk. But if we don't have an audience, we're just talking to ourselves. Um, I also want to thank Catherine, um, from the Culinary Historians of Chicago. Um, the Highwood Historical Society and the uh, Highland Park Historical Society. Um, I think a lot of attention gets paid to what academic historians do, but I believe that local historical societies are vastly more important in the everyday life of people. Um, I'm a member of the Rogers Park Westridge Historical Society myself, my native and still neighborhood, and I think the work that people do to keep their local community's history alive and to do research is vastly underrated where I work and ought to be more more held up for esteem. So I just want to say all of you who are involved with those groups are fabulous. Those of you who are just here to drink because it's your regular bar are also fabulous, but you might think about joining your local historical society. Um, I'd like to thank Wilma and Santis for hosting. Um, I also <laughs> would like to point out that as a bartender, I could never work in a bar configured like this. 
I need way more of a back on the wall. Oh, as he falls over. Back on the wall thing, the long narrow bar that's the more traditional Chicago style bar. And like standing over there and knowing people are behind me and I can't see them would make me very nervous, which is why I'm up here in the window for this part of the talk. So my plan is, number one, to respect your time and let you know what I'm up to here. Um, I'm going to talk about American history and how taverns, inns, bars are part of that history, um, American drink culture in a very broad way, to focus in on prohibition and how prohibition happened with some, uh, a special focus on the North Shore area where we're at now, um, and all in the context of arguments that are being made uh, right now in American politics, but also in the past about American identity. Um, the politics of prohibition is really the politics of who gets to be an American. And I'm going to be making some statements that are political, and I just want to say right up front, disclaimer, any opinions expressed are mine and mine alone, and do not necessarily represent the opinion of Santis, of Northwestern's English Department, or of Major League Baseball. Or the historical site. You're all off the hook, it's just me. Um, and then I'll leave time at the end for questions. Um, questions will be in the shout out and I'll repeat it variety. And in the meantime, no one who's at a table should hesitate to go up to the bar for a drink. This is not class, there will actually not be a quiz at the end. Um, this is a social event, please enjoy yourselves. Unless you want to talk quietly and not listen to me, in which case you're out of luck. Um, so, I also need to acknowledge my sources. Um, Perry Dewis's great book, The Saloon, uh, Public Drinking in Boston and Chicago, 1880-1920. Um, Bob Skilmick's great book, History of Chicago Brewing. Uh, Madeline Powers' even better book, Faces Along the Bar. Uh, Lisa McGear's book, The War on Alcohol. Uh, Daniel, uh, uh, Susan Cheever's book, Drinking in America, Our Secret History, um, which some of my first facts are taken from. And then Daniel Ockman's great book, Last Call. Um, and he framed the question thusly, when you think about prohibition, uh, alcohol in all of its manifestations was the fifth largest business in the United States. How could you ban that? So he, for his original working title for his book was How the Hell Did That Happen? And that got nixed by his editors, which is a shame. Um, what I add to this from my own scholarship is simply thinking more about these identity issues and also thinking about the dynamic of public and private spaces. Like right now we're in a semi-public space, people walking by can see in here. That's an important part of um, how prohibition ended up happening actually. But to back up to my sort of largest frame, um, the United States of America, going back to the colonial period before the USA became the USA, was simply drenched in alcohol. Uh, foreign visitors coming here in the late 18th, early 19th century, one of them commented, Americans drink from dawn till dawn. Um, America's founding narratives leave out a lot of stuff, and here I'm working off Susan Cheever's great book. For instance, you might have heard of the Mayflower, right? Uh, the Mayflower, the, those pilgrims were originally supposed to go to Virginia. That's where they had a, uh, a royal you know, charter for. But they stopped in Massachusetts and unloaded all those troublesome religious extremists because the ship was running out of beer. And the captain knew that if he didn't have enough beer for the trip back to England, his crew would mutiny and kill him. So we have Plymouth Rock because the keg was running low, essentially. And that's part of um, a, a pattern in American culture, which is drinking uh, habits, drinking ideas, uh, come from the culture that people are immigrating from. And in England, in most of the Middle Ages and early modern period, you didn't drink water. 
because it was coming out of streams that were also used as toilets. Um, so it was not good for you. But you cook that water into beer, and you could drink it all day. It was usually pretty weak, you know, like two, three percent. Um, so people drank a lot of beer back in the day. And then as the colonial uh, economy developed, rum was central to the triangular trade that slavery was based on. And whiskey was central to the agricultural development of the Northeast United, what's now the Northeast United States. You didn't have good roads. If you were a farmer and you had 14 acres of wheat, you could change that wheat into whiskey and it would fit on one wagon and you could get it to market. You couldn't get all those bushels of wheat to market, but you could get the whiskey. Some of the earliest social unrest in the Young Republic was the Whiskey Rebellion, when farmers in Pennsylvania didn't want to pay their excise taxes. And the federal government, led by George Washington, sent in the army to make them pay taxes on their alcohol. Um, during this period, we also have the great, some of the great myths of American culture. I already mentioned the Plymouth Rock and the Mayflower. You've all heard of Johnny Appleseed? Okay, mm -hmm. I remember as a little kid, the books with Johnny Appleseed, he's John Chapman, he's got a pot on his head and he's sort of walking through the wilderness a little bit ahead of all the other colonists, and he's planting apples. And when people arrive, oh, there's all these apples they can make pie with. No, these were cider apples. He planted them and cultivated them and came back around and took care of them, and when people finally showed up, he charged them because they would make hard cider with these apples. And this hard cider is very important later. Um, again, in the colonial period, taverns and inns represented the dynamic of we love bars and we hate bars. That's part of American history. Um, lots of the early events in American history that we, again, mythologized actually are best explained by our founding fathers being drunk. The Boston Tea Party happened in the middle of the night because they had to drink all night to get their courage up to go out and dump all that tea into the uh, Boston Harbor to uh, protest the taxation. Um, Lexington and Concord, the British troops were supposed to arrive there midday. They didn't get there till late in the evening, and the colonists who were waiting to protest them spent all that time drinking, and then opened fire, probably while impaired, to use contemporary terminology. Um, so by the early 19th century, Americans began to notice that all this drinking was maybe a problem, right? And I've got a great acronym to help you remember the evolution of how attitudes toward public drinking evolved. TAP. TAP. Temperance, abstinence, prohibition. That's the movement that took place. Um, the idea behind temperance and talking about alcohol on the North Shore, of course, means talking about the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and I'll get back to them soon, was simply the idea that you shouldn't drink quite so much. Like maybe for breakfast you just have milk, and you save the beer for mid-morning instead of first thing. Um, maybe every business deal doesn't have to be sealed down at the tavern over whiskey and rum, although taverns were encouraged by the colonial authorities because you needed public places for people to gather. Most courthouses and most meeting houses were also taverns and inns, because they were the biggest uh, places and the places that could accommodate a large crowd like we have tonight. Um, temperance didn't really work that well. Right Now, the, the people I'm talking about at this time period had, did not understand the way we do, that alcoholism is a disease that has both genetic and social components. They saw it very much as a moral thing. If you drank too much, you were sinful and evil. It was your fault. And if you couldn't stop, it's because you weren't trying hard enough. But they realized that temperance didn't really work for some reason or another, and so began to promote abstinence, um, zero alcohol. 
This actually begins, believe it or not, in Ireland with the Cork Total Abstinence Society, founded by a guy named, uh, I'm blanking his name, Father, someone alone in the room. Um, there's a great statue of him on downtown Cork on Patrick Street between four pubs. Of course, Father Matthew, he was the, the uh, saint of abstinence. Um, and that was even harder to do. But there were early organizations, oh, and now we have the, uh, there were early organizations here, uh, the Washingtonians, they were called, um, which were essentially like 12-step programs. Guys would band together and say, look, we're all gonna, we gotta go down to the inn because that's the only place you can go hang out, but we'll all sit with each other and not drink, and we'll, we'll get through the day that way. So some of the things that we think about our culture now about um, sobriety are very much have these old roots, although the Washington Society died out. Now the people who were promoting temperance and abstinence were coming from the same religious and cultural place as abolitionists were coming from. Um, these people were tended to be white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They tended to be very fervent in their religious belief. And you see a lot of rhetoric about alcohol um, and prohibition and abstinence that very much echoes the rhetoric of the abolitionist movement. They talk about being a slave to the bottle. They talk about demon rum. They talk about families being destroyed by, uh, by alcohol the same way families were destroyed by slavery. Um, and so eventually they, these people come to the conclusion that Abstinence isn't working, temperance isn't working. The only thing that will save America from its drink problem is prohibition. And again, when you look at the uh, economic impact of the alcohol industry, between the brewers, the distillers, the vintners, the people who made the bottles, the people who made the barrels, the people who transported the alcohol, the people who sold it at the retail level, fifth largest industry in the United States. Um, how could that happen? or how the hell did that happen, as Daniel Lachman put it. Um, now here on the North Shore, we tend to think Francis Willard and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Northwestern grads in the room, raise your hand if you've ever been in a party at Willard, right? It's kind of ironic, and now there is, of course, a distillery in Evanston called FEW, which stands for, it's uh, Francis Willard's initials, I don't know what her middle name is, I will admit, um, which is uh, kind of ironic. There's also a brewery in Evanston called Temperance Brewing Company which makes really good beer, which is also kind of ironic. But the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the mythology of it, the idea that prohibition was founded by women against fun, basically, is mistaken. It's, it's actually misogynist. Um, the idea that somehow women were responsible for preventing men from going out to the bar and having a drink, preventing men from bonding with each other in the saloon, which was you know the third place where you form community and, you're not at home, you're not at work, you're at a place you go to of your own will and your own desire. That, the idea that just women didn't like that is just nonsense. Uh, the WCTU did not cause prohibition. They were not the organization that got it accomplished. Um, they were very broadly focused, um, to use the contemporary terminology, I would call them social justice warriors. They were interested in child labor laws. They were interested in women having equal rights. They were interested in women getting the vote. They were interested in women being able to bicycle. Because if you could ride a bicycle, you wouldn't get groped on public transportation or you wouldn't be dependent on a man to give you car fare, right? And they were interested in temperance. Not, no, notice, not prohibition, temperance. So this kind of broadly focused uh, political approach is not what got things done. What got things done, what got prohibition done, was the anti-saloon league. The Anti-Saloon League was a, a fundamentalist Protestant organization based in Westerville, Ohio. 
its archives are still in their public library. I recommend visiting if you're a, an archive diver. They're great. And these guys were the National Rifle Association of their day. They had one thing they were interested in. Not whether or not you drank, whether or not you as a politician would vote dry. You could be a total sot. They wouldn't care. Would you swear that when you were given the opportunity to vote dry, you would vote dry? They would support you. This was before you had the kind of widespread gerrymandering that's commonplace now. Most electoral districts would be about 40% wet, 40% dry, and 20% eh, no opinion. And so if you were a wet, they could organize and get some of those 20% to vote against you and you would lose. And they were totally focused on nothing but elections. And at every level of government, local and municipal government, state government, federal government, because they understood how what they realized would be necessary to get prohibition passed, a constitutional amendment, they knew how that worked. There hadn't been a lot of them, but they knew that you had to get all the states to ratify if you didn't have a constitutional convention. So they were constantly working for decades. They had a speakers bureau that can only be compared to the best cable news network and blog organization ever. They had thousands of people who were paid public speakers who went out and spoke at churches and at rallies. They had people provide pre-written letters to your local editor arguing in favor of voting an area dry. They were completely about the discourse and about running the discourse, and they won. They absolutely did. Um, but the way they won is what gets, what's interests me, because it gets into the politics of prohibition and how they reveal fundamental divisions in American culture and identity that we are still in the middle of right now, in 2018. Um, the dries, as a rule, tended to be small town and rural. They tended to be white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, the Methodists and the Baptists especially. And they, tend, they called themselves Native Americans. Not in the way we use that term now, but simply meaning Mayflower, we've been here forever, we don't know who our immigrant ancestors were. We're real Americans. We were born here. The Wets, on the other hand, tended to be urban, uh, Roman Catholic or Jewish, and immigrants or the children of immigrants. You see where this is going, right? I mean, I don't have to actually draw the map. Uh, political maps back then and rules then as now give small town and rural voters more proportionate representation than big cities get at the state and federal level. So a vocal minority can become a political majority and win elections and shape the policy of the whole country despite representing the minority opinion and the minority values. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> At that point, I need to just pause and drink. <laughs> and again, everybody, go to the bar if you need a drink. Don't hesitate. So these divisions we still have today. Um, the real argument about prohibition was, can you be an American if you're also Irish or German? Uh, in the 19th century, the kind of demonizing rhetoric that we now hear about Latino immigrants or about Muslim immigrants were used about the Irish and the Germans. And it was specifically focused on their drinking culture. Irish whiskey and German lager were threats to American identity. Um, like the taco truck on every corner that we heard about in November of, of two years ago. Um, now in the, uh, the, the public nature of this is part of the issue. 
Um, immigrants bring from the old country their aspirations, their desire to be American, but they also bring their culture with them. And immigrants are always negotiating the hyphen between the old country and the new country. And one of the ways you do that is in your drinking culture. Uh, the Irish had whiskey taverns. And if you were an Irishman, you'd go into a bar and there'd be no stools, there'd be no tables, there'd be no women. There'd be beer in case a German wandered in and you would get whiskey. The Germans, on the other hand, had beer gardens. And the, Protest the, the prohibitionists hated beer gardens because beer gardens were places where men and women and children drank. Everyone was drinking except the children and there was men and women together and families. This was terrible. Drinking is evil in itself, but if it has to happen, it should happen at your private club or at your home where you might serve a bottle of wine with dinner, but not out in public where children can see you. Now, if anyone here has ever been to Germany, you know that every German town is full of beer gardens and the beer gardens have like slides and teeter-totters for the kids to play on and there's always food and there's always music and there's always conviviality, right? It's Kamilkeit, right? Go down to Lincoln Square and you can get a little taste of that still. But for these white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Americans, the very thought of a beer being opened in front of a child was child abuse, was awful, was terrible, had to stop. And the publicness of this, in big cities especially, is what drives the politics of uh, prohibition, eventually. One of my favorite quotes from one of the two books that I've got here for sale, by the way, um, from Chicago by Day and Night, which is a guide to the uh, 1893 World's Fair for visitors who are looking for a little good time. And it's got this, it's this crazy book where they can't say, hey, go here and you'll find all the hookers you want, because they can't say that. But they'll say, whatever you do, don't go here where all the hookers are, basically. Um, but a line that sort of sums up the hypocrisy of this era, of course, the anonymous writer says, no well-regulated person ever enters a saloon except for purposes of investigation. Right? You go out to see how these people live and to see how they need to be reformed. So through the 1870s up to the early 20th century, there was a slow but steady buildup from the Anti-Saloon League. Many regions of the country, whole states, were dry. Kansas was a dry state. When Kerry Nation, the, the crazy great axe-wielding prohibitionist, went around busting up saloons in Kansas, every single place she busted up couldn't call the cops because it was illegal to be open, even as they were across the street from the Kansas State House. Right, the sort of openness of that. Obviously, the whole North Shore was dry, um, thanks to Northwestern's charter. Um, someone from the Historical Society told me earlier this was the only wet town between Chicago and the Wisconsin line. And I'm like, they should have brought the Wisconsin line south. Would have done lots of good. Um, but it took a while to convince people. The federal government was very much unable to do prohibition because the biggest single source of revenue for the federal government was excise taxes on alcohol both locally produced, or uh, interior produced, and imported from overseas. 16th Amendment, the income tax. Why do you pay that check to the Internal Revenue Service? Because before then, most of the government revenues came from external sources, from import tariffs. Again, this seems strangely germane today. Um, once the 16th Amendment was passed, now federal lawmakers could no longer say, we can't pass prohibition because the government will go broke. So the 18th Amendment ends up passing, in part because of anti-German uh, uh, fervor during the build-up to and the fighting of the First World War. Think of the names of all the great brewers and just pronounce them like they're German. Müller, Pabst, Schlitz, Anheuser-Busch. All these guys, 
were rich as hell, and they owned castles back in Germany, and lots of them sold war bonds for the Central Powers in 1914, 15, and 16, before the Lusitania. So brewers were perceived as anti-American foreign agents. Um, and, and some of the stuff in the Westerville Public Library is great. It's like these, these posters, him or them, and the him will be this giant fat brewer, like the guy in the Monopoly game with the top hat and everything, and then the them will be the starving women and children of Belgium. Who are you gonna pick, right? Um, and the anti-German fervor, we tend to forget about it. Street names in Chicago were changed, school names were changed. Um, in southern Illinois, a man was lynched for speaking German on the street, right? The same kind of anti-the-other anti politics that we still have to deal with today. So the anti-Saloon League had all the votes lined up. The federal lawmakers thought they could finesse this a little bit. And so for the, the first time, an amendment was passed for the Constitution that had a time limit on it. If it wasn't passed in seven years, it would be void. They all took a deep breath and figured that would cover it not realizing the Anti-Saloon League had every state legislature lined up. It took th less than 13 months. And then everybody was like, oh, now what? Right? So the Volstead Act had to be written. The Volstead, Volstead was a legislator from Minnesota, but the person who wrote the Volstead Act was a guy named Wayne Wheeler, who was the president of the Anti-Saloon League. So basically the lobbyists wrote the law. Again, how does this, <laughs> how, how different is that from what we're living with now? Um, you had unrestricted money and influence going on. And the results were mixed. I'm going to start focusing soon on Highwood, I, sw I swear. Um, the results of Prohibition were mixed. Americans drank less, and we still drink less than we did before Prohibition. Um, however, we had a lot more crime, and a lot more organized crime than we had before Prohibition. Um, the word scofflaw, you're all probably familiar with. Usually we talk about it as like people who don't pay their parking tickets until they invented the Denver boot. And now you kind of got it. But the term scofflaw was actually uh, coined in a contest by a group that was trying to repeal prohibition um, to define people who know drinking is illegal but do it anyway. People who scoff at the law, right? Um, the organized crime that grew up, there's a lot of stereotypes about it, about ethnic origin and about other things. Um, but the one thing I like to always emphasize is organized crime requires a, is a triangle with three parts. One side, you gotta have criminals. Right? You've got to have people who are willing to break the law. On the other side, you have to have corrupt cops and politicians. Because if you don't have them, the lawbreakers will indeed be caught and go to jail. Throughout the United States during the prohibition period, corrupt cops and corrupt judges and corrupt politicians let things go wild because they were being paid by the criminals. But where did the criminals get all that money? The base of the triangle is regular citizens. Organized crime doesn't work unless regular, otherwise law-abiding people are willing to break the law. And this often involves substances, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or other drugs, or behavior, whether it's prostitution or gambling, or financial things, if it's loan sharking. But without the base of people who were willing to walk into a speakeasy, Al Capone never would have made it happen. Right, so there's a real way in which prohibition created a, a lawless America, a country where everybody was willing to just sort of do what they wanted even though theoretically it was illegal. And it was, well, it was illegal, but theoretically it was wrong. So, prohibition goes on and there's uh, lots of issues that again echo with today. If you were poor in the South, if you were black, you were far more likely to have the prohibition laws enforced against you than if you were right, white or rich. Same thing as today, where African Americans and Latinos get arrested at far greater rates than whites do for drug offenses. 
And by the way, we live in prohibition now. It's just different substances. It's the same exact politics. Um, we also had vigilantism going on during prohibition. Uh, the second um, uh, sort of iteration of the Ku Klux Klan grew up in the 20s as white enforcers on prohibition, as essentially lynching drinkers and producers of alcohol. Um, so that vigilantism leads me to Highwood and <laughs> the North Shore. Um, this kind of uh, issue is about identity and about, uh, about who pays the cost and who gets away with stuff speaks to the experience of this place, this town. Um, but it also brings up other forms of identity that are on the North Shore that I think are really important to keep in mind when we talk about the politics of identity in relation to drinking culture. Fort Sheridan. Highwood was wet in no small part because you had a constant shifting population of soldiers coming through here uh, for, for generations. And I've got a, I did some research in the weirdest place ever. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the fact that there is a community of Americans who collect poker chips, like, you know, the, with brands on them from different saloons or uh, places. And they've got these vast books of orders from the company that produced them. And if they find some wacky poker chip, they're like, well, where was that for? Well, then they find out, they look in the order book and they find out where the poker chips were delivered. And there's a whole lot that were delivered within about two blocks of where we're standing right now. Two places where illegal gambling went on this whole time. And actually, the same outfit helped me prove that my great-great-grandfather, wait, no, great-grandfather and his brother on my mother's father's side ran uh, gambling outfits for Capone because we found a poker chip and then the researchers went and found the newspaper stories about the place that my great-grandfather ran. I thought it was just family bullshit, right? Everybody in Chicago, oh yeah, my family knew Capone. But no, apparently great-grandpa Walter Schneider actually did. But here is a letter from 1946 about um, Lake County gambling and it's, uh, the byline is Highland Park, but I think it's about Highland. Um, this is a letter from a guy who only identifies himself as XGI. The letter in the slot machine gambling in Lake County is an old story hereabouts and is only a small part of the sordid picture of petty politicians and hoodlums getting fat at the expense of the return GI and the gullible public. During the war, a group from Highwood in the vicinity of Fort Sheridan reaped a golden harvest from the boys in the service with phony crap games, bookies, and bum liquor, while the big dealers in the Vernon Club in Deerfield and the White House on Half Day, Prairie, right around the corner here, have been going, uh, been going to town on a 24-hour-a-day basis, welcoming the return GI with his mustering-out pay, as well as the luxury-loving, thrill-seeking wives of some of our more substantial neighbors. Note the gender politics there. Like, women aren't supposed to be out drinking and gambling. Returning GIs, you can understand. Uh, he continues, they do everything but greet you with a brass band at these joints, park and watch your car, while on the inside it would remind you of a busy morning on the Board of Trade with shills, mostly petty hoods from Chicago, manning the crap of blackjack, roulette, and other tables. Yes, the boys in Lake County are doing quite nicely. Thank you. XGI is the signature. So this, this letter, I love it, because it brings up lots of different issues about identity. Again, uh, as a service, serviceman, you can understand it, right? If you're in training over at Fort Sheridan or Great Lakes Naval Base, and you're going off to war, you might not be coming back. You got a pocket full of pay, you're gonna spend it having a good time, because it might be the last good time you ever have. You get back from the war and you want to celebrate. And so you're going to go out. So the serviceman as a subject position, as an identity, 
I think is really important to keep in mind thinking about Hyward and its culture. Um, what he's referring to here in terms of the gambling, there was crusades led by uh, the Tribune and by various, literally, vigilante groups. They would deputize a room full of guys, go to a judge, get a warrant, and then go raid a place and break up its slot machines. Right? Independent citizens would do this. Um, in one other letter, they described the GIs who were lucky enough to get out with their trousers and their shoes. Um, because they get ripped off by the crooked gamblers. So that's an important part of what's going on here. After Prohibition, maybe the most interesting thing about uh, the North Shore and its relationship with uh, uh, saloon culture, besides the fact that Highwood continued to be the wet oasis in the dry North Shore, you also had Howard Street, the boundary with Chicago. Up until the 1970s, Howard Street was basically an, an endless strip Yes, come in, please. I'm talking, but you don't have to listen. Um, an endless strip of bars on the south side of Howard, on the Chicago side. And the busiest night of the week was Thursday. Anyone have an idea why? Sorry? May Day. No, Maid's Day's off. Oh. The North Shore, because of its relative wealth in lots of its communities, had a large population of domestic servants who had, were live-in servants. And you got one night a week off, and it was Thursday. And what did you do? You went down to Howard Street to drink and to have some fun, because you had your one night a week off. Um, Mortimer Lake, in their terrible book, Chicago Confidential, talked about how local criminals would know, knew this, and you'd have one guy chat up the maid, find out where she worked, while the other guy got her keys out of her purse and made impressions and then had keys to the house. Right? But also, you had literally dozens of bars between Sheridan Road and Western Avenue in Chicago was one long strip of bars because of North Shore being dry and because it had a population of domestic servants who wanted to have some fun on their one night a week off. Um, now obviously all of this has changed to some degree. If you look at the history of Highwood Park in particular, um, this was a working class community founded with lots and lots of Italian immigrants. So there was the anti-Italian nonsense that went on, but there also was the simple fact that at one point this town had 3,700 people and 50 bars, right? Because it was for the whole neighborhood. Um, and the reality of uh, organized crime is it's always done by marginalized groups who otherwise don't have um, economic opportunities. And in the early 20th century, that meant the Italians, the Irish, and the Jews, and other groups fulfill some of those roles now. But the prejudice against Italian, um, or the image of Italian organized crime as being some kind of you know, essential American thing is really about popular culture and the text like The Godfather and Goodfellas and all that sort of thing. It's not exactly realistic. Um, so food and drink culture on the North Shore can come back down to uh, the military and the domestics as well as an island of wet Italians surrounded by dry wasps, if you want to overstate it slightly. But I want to talk a little bit about food and then it'll be question time, because like I said, I want to respect your time. Um, you all having some pretzels? Oh my god, I should have done that. <laughs> they make your mouth dry. Um, so two of the books I've already mentioned, Chicago by Day and Night, which is this guidebook for guys visiting the fair who are looking for a good time. And its representation of Chicago saloon culture is quite fascinating. But the main book that I've, I've been building off of here is George Aid's The Old Time Saloon. George Aid was a Chicago journalist in the 1880s and 90s wrote in, uh, syndicated some of the first syndicated newspaper columns and got filthy rich. He wrote two columns, one were, were called Slang, uh, pardon me, 
Fables in Slang, and the other was called Tiles of the Town and Tales of the City. And he got filthy rich donors and could retire and became a Broadway playwright, first guy to have three plays on Broadway at once, one of the first film writers and directors, um, and a Republican political activist. Um, any of you Big Ten uh, football fans? Purdue, anybody from Purdue? Ross Aid Stadium? Aid was the guy who raised the money, along with his buddy Dave Ross. They were both in Sigma Chi, if that matters to you. Um, but when he talks, when we talk about uh, food culture and saloons and why you have pretzels out, one of the things that the uh, dry forces most hated was the whole concept of the free lunch. This is something that started in Chicago in the 1880s. There were so many saloons. There were saloons on every damn street corner. You had to compete with the other guy. And how you competed with him was you'd have oysters for free. And then he'd have ham sandwiches. And then you'd have oysters and soup. And then he'd have ham sandwiches and pretzels. And all this food went out. And crusaders against uh, um, drinking, like Upton Sinclair, uh, running the jungle, saw the free lunch as a way in which evil bar owners were enticing men to drink. Of course, if you worked in a factory, they didn't have a cafeteria back then. But if you went across the street to the saloons, from across from the factory, you paid a nickel. And one of my artifacts I have, if you want to look at it later, an anti-prohibition thing, or a pro-repeal thing, saying this country needs a good five-cent class of beer. I'm not suggesting you lower prices tonight, well, uh, I just, this is historical. Um, and so, uh, the, the idea that the free lunch was this kind of awful thing, opulent places had, like, sideboards with waiters, right? But you were paying a lot more for your booze there. It was the working class saloon that the, the drives were worried about. And uh, Aid is very much a puncturer of myths. He believes that uh, the, the saloon caused its own demise because so many saloon keepers broke the law. Um, and he also believes that there's a lot of mythology that ought to be getting rid of. So, for instance, so I'm just gonna read a little bit about this. Uh, free lunch, he's, he's writing in response to the idea that free lunches were somehow these opulent things. Um, became an institution because of the well-known zoological fact that certain kinds of food promote thirst, and any malt fluid with a sharp tang to it encourages hunger. The more lunch the beer hounds consumed, the greater was their enthusiasm for salty food, and the more pretzels and sardellen, which is the German word for uh, sardines, which in a German saloon would be commonplace. They gobbled up, the more enduring became the thirst. The net result was a positive demonstration of the fact that the textbook on physiology, which said that the total capacity of the human stomach was three pints, was simply groping in the dark. Right, obviously we can hold more than that. Um, he talks about the, uh, probably the most valuable of all the thirst-provoking items included in the average free lunch was the limp silver-coated minnow called the sardelle, a relative of the sardine. Always it was known by the German plural for the name, which is sardellen. The aristocratic sardine immersed in olive oil and coming in small cans was too expensive to be set out in large platters. Furthermore, olive oil counteracts the uh, influence of alcohol. Um, at the end of this paragraph, he says, uh, people were in, uh, sardines were in great favor because a patron, after he had, had taken a couple of them, draped across a slab of rye bread, had to rush to the bar and drink a lot of beer to get the taste out of his mouth. The sardellen were more than fish. They were silent partners. Right, so the, these pretzels are here to encourage you to fill the till for Wilma. And let's just be honest about that, I think it's a good thing. Although I shouldn't eat them while I'm trying to talk, that's bad. Um, put prohibition. Um, after, okay, I've already told a little bit more short after prohibition. But during prohibition, I want to emphasize some of the crazy stuff that happened. For instance, 
you could get a prescription from your doctor for medicinal whiskey. <laughs> I always thought that if I ever owned a bar, I would have my gift certificates made up looking like this. Like, you have to drink this now. Um, the laws were full of uh, exceptions. You had to have an exception, for instance, for religious production of alcohol. You needed wine for Jewish and Catholic ceremonies. In New York City, the number of rabbis quintupled immediately after the passage of the Volsa Act. Of course, there's no like central outfit who says who's a rabbi and who isn't, right? You can just say, I'm a rabbi, and then you can buy all the wine you want, right? You were still allowed to produce alcohol for your own personal consumption, so, cause, so farmers could keep producing cider, which had been done since colonial times. But you can also make gin in your own bathtub, as long as you didn't sell it to anybody, right? Um, and the, the real biggest exception, though, was still in enforcement. If you were a poor working class person, you were in trouble if you got caught. If you were a rich upper class person, you might have a cellar full of alcohol purchased before prohibition started and that was totally legal. Right? There's, there's great images, films that were taken at the time, newsreels, of people basically buying out entire liquor stores. Um, in a private club downtown in Chicago, the Cliff Dwellers had an, um, a president of it who was a dry, even though most of his members were wet. And one of them had actually bought, he figured out how much wine he drank, and he figured out how long he was supposed to live, and he bought enough wine to cover him for the rest of his life, and then he died, like six weeks later, and all that wine went to this club that theoretically was dry, and the members hid it in a, in a, in a wall, like they walled off a room and hid it in there until they could elect a different president and get at their wine. Um, so I've wandered far away from Highwood, but I will end with this simply saying, Every town in, in the North Shore has its own distinctive relationship to this history. Uh, the dry towns surrounding Highwood could be dry in part because they knew they could come here. And this place could be what it was, a working class town with a strong ethnic identification that provided the labor that built a lot of the mansions that surrounded it. Um, in part because it had places like this to come to at the end of your work day, relax with your friends, chill out, have a few drinks, and then get up and go back to work again in the morning. Which is what I'll be doing tomorrow, after I take questions and answers from you all. Thank you for listening. Oh, and I should mention copies of The Old Time Saloon by George Aide, and Chicago by Day and Night, um, annotated by me and the other one with one of my editing partners, are for sale if you want to buy books. I'm happy to take cash, credit, cash check or I'll trust you. And you can mail it to me because I'm not gonna get one of those credit card strappy guys. Gotta draw the line somewhere. But any questions? Yes? Are there more alcoholics now than there were? That's hard, okay, the question is, are there more alcoholics now than there were? Um, that's really hard to measure because we didn't have the understanding in the past that we have now, again, about alcoholism as a disease with social and genetic components. Um, my instinct, as someone who's got relatives who are in the healthcare professions, is that it's probably pretty steady state. There are people who probably should not be drinking, and there are people who can drink in moderation, and there are people who, you know, can, you don't, right? Um, so I don't think there's any more. What there is definitely now is less access to alcohol. Um, and ironically, uh, the prohibitionists wanted less access to alcohol, but prohibition changed all the rules. Before Prohibition, you had closing hours. You wouldn't serve women. If most, the vast majority of bars, if a woman was in it, she was a sex worker. Um, you definitely didn't have uh, racial mis mixing. Prohibition happens, 
There are no rules. It's all illegal. You're open 24 hours a day. Men and women are drinking together. Black and white people are drinking together. You can't say anything's wrong because everything's illegal. So it created, and then after the war, women kept saying, well, we're not actually going back to the kitchen now. Thank you. Um, right, Rosie the Riveter might have lost her job, but Rosie the Drinker isn't going to stop going out. Um, so I think it changed fundamental aspects of alcohol. Like if I was doing this talk in 1930, 1919, there would be no women in this room. Right? Um, do you know that in, until the 1970s, it was illegal for a woman in Chicago to attend bar? Unless she was a blood relative or the wife of the owner? And who got that law changed? The singles bars down on Division Street. Because they wanted to have women bartenders. Some, oh, some women are saying, yes, of course, we want to tell her too. Um, so we don't really know. Um, it's, it's hard to measure. But I would definitely say less, just because the, the amount of alcohol consumed is less. But the total number of alcoholics is probably, is probably a population thing. I'm being asked to make an announcement. We have hot nuts in back. We have fresh coffee. I'm not sure what the hot nuts are. Is that like one of those machines with the quarter and you get hot nuts? Homemade hot nuts and fresh coffee for anyone who needs uh, stimulant to get on. Okay, more questions. And again, if no one else asks, I will just talk with you all now. Um, I, I read last week, this week, that uh, several liquor companies like Diageo, mm -hmm. Concentration Finance, they're going to uh, partner, they are partnering with marijuana companies. They're going to have a huge, like, liquor infused of this marijuana that's used. So the, the, the observation is, and I'll treat this as a question, uh, the observation is that a lot of the big liquor companies are teaming up with uh, marijuana producers or cannabis producers, we really shouldn't call it marijuana, and I'll explain why in a minute, um, and producing uh, cannabis or THC-infused drinks, including potentially Coca-Cola, which is like, the last thing I need to be is like, desiring nachos and um, caffeine. That doesn't go together. Um, but the whole, I mean, right now we live in a country where in like, I think half a dozen states, recreational marijuana is, is legal. In approximately half the country, medicinal, uh, cannabis is legal. Why is it illegal at all? Well, near the end of Prohibition, when repeal was definitely coming, and the law enforcement saw it coming, and by the way, that's maybe the biggest thing that, that Prohibition changed about American culture was the idea of the federal government. Before Prohibition, the federal government's law enforcement arm was like a T-Rex little tiny nothing, right? They had the Secret Service to protect the president and, and, and the currency, and you had the, the uh, Coast Guard and the Customs guys to do that. You did not have the feds, the FBI, much less DEA, ICE, all these other groups. The federal government did not do law enforcement. That was local. But then you had a federal law that the locals weren't enforcing, so you suddenly had this growth of the carceral state and of the police state, essentially. But the prohibition was coming to an end. Everybody knew it because it was the economy was being hurt by it. Everyone was breaking the law. Everyone agreed that breaking the law was bad, but it kept happening. So repeal prohibition, open up all those breweries, guys will get jobs, tax money will flow, which is basically what this is arguing. You'll get taxes. The government will be prosperous again. Um, so these guys who are making a living enforcing laws looked around. Now, heroin and cocaine had only been illegal since 1914. And that's not really a big problem, right? Oh, but this marijuana, this stuff, local weed. Like in congressional hearings, they represented marijuana as something that made Mexicans get high and rape white women. That's why they started calling it marijuana. It's cannabis, it's hemp. There's words for it in English. Why do we use this Spanish term? Because just like they used anti-German and anti-Irish 
prejudice to justify prohibition, they used anti-Mexican prejudice to justify outlawing marijuana. And there is no fatal dose of THC. And I worked behind a bar for a million years. I've seen a lot of beer muscles. I've never seen anybody flexing pot muscles, right? Other than to reach for the remote control on the Doritos. Um, so we still live in a, a we still live in prohibition. It's just a different substance or set of substances. Question? Yes. And then here. I thought you might have gotten to this for us. What is the term speakeasy? What, what are the uh, words? The, term, the question is, what is the term speakeasy? Where does it come from? It is lost in the mists of drunken prohibition time. There's two theories. One is, you were told lots of places that had illegal drinking were private apartments um, in, a, in a building, or you were told to speakeasy. Shh, keep it down, or the neighbors will hear us and call the cops. The other is, when you're out on the street, you don't mention the fact that the place that used to be a saloon that's now a a tailor shop with a bunch of clothes hanging in the window is still a saloon. Out, you don't speak about things out on the street. Could be either one, we don't really know. But the, the image of the speakeasy that you get, you know, it's a jazz band and fancy waiters and tuxedos and all that. There were places like that. The vast majority of the speakeasy would have been just like this room, but with the windows painted black. And if you want to get a good representation that's almost contemporary of what real speakeasies were like, uh, the movie called Northside 777 from 1948, starring James. Uh, oh. Somebody say it louder. No, it wasn't hacked. James Stewart, right? I just was having a blank on the movie star. Now, based on a real case from the 1940s of a guy who was accused of killing some cops and convicted and hadn't done it, the opening sequence shows, you know, a speakeasy in the back of a grocery store in the Polish district by the stockyards, and that's a much more realistic depiction than you get in most Hollywood movies. Movie's called Call Northside 777, like it's a phone number. Uh, 1948, James Stewart, uh, Hugh Hathaway is the director, and I recommend it very highly. If you want to see what Chicago looked like in 1948, it's the movie to see. You mentioned how large the anti saloon league was, and what was their funding? Uh, so, uh, how large the anti saloon league was, what was its funding? Its funding was donations from people who believed in it, largely raised through churches. They were, uh, they were churches in uh, Protestant colleges, which is, which is how the abolitionist movement paid for itself. It was absolutely about uh, people who didn't, weren't spending money on booze, spending money on preventing you from spending money on booze. Not to, not to reduce it just to money. Have you done any, any since you're a so I'm being asked, I think I'm being blamed for Northwestern students drinking in Highwood Park. I'm not sure exactly if that's a question. Well, no, Northwestern students were residents of the North Shore, and they wanted to have a drink like other residents of the North Shore, and they went down to Howard Street, and they went up to Highwood. Um, the, the party culture, it's weird how, how puritanical America gets and how often things go bad, but in the 1960s and 70s, Northwestern actually had a... A policy of providing beer in the dorms to keep the students from going anywhere else and drinking. Then some knucklehead who wasn't even a Northwestern student got hammered and laid down in the middle of Sheridan Road and was killed. And that was the end of that. And now, of course, uh, you know, since the, the political party that doesn't like the federal government interfering in your personal life mandated nationwide 21 drinking age by threatening to withhold highway funds. I'm talking about Elizabeth Dole and the Reagan administration, right? Used to be able to go to Wisconsin at 18 or Louisiana, 
half a dozen other states. They, they blackmailed states into making the drinking age 21, and Dole said you want to make it 25. Oh. Yeah. So once you do that, you create the binge drinking culture that you have now. Uh, Pre-gaming, kids call it, right? And somebody who's young is nodding. Okay, it's okay. Um, but you used to have a, a sane attitude of, hey, have a few drinks, but be moderate, be temperate. And now it's like, if you have a drop of alcohol in your dorm at Northwestern, you're, you're going to be in deep, deep shit. And I know because I've served on the disciplinary committees where people are, you know, in deep, deep shit. Who otherwise have straight A averages and everything's fine, but, you know, they get drunk and fall down in their dorm, and now you're looking at a year off before med school or before finishing your career. So there's, you know, the, the sort of weird puritanical American punishment culture is part of this issue. I think we've got time for one or two more right here. Do you know about the Swedes from this town? About the what from this town? Oh, and me asked if I know anything about the Swedes in this town. I know the Swedes were here before the Italians. That's all I know. The Swedes founded a bunch of towns. They, uh, they were farmers up here, is my understanding, but when it was still farmland. Yeah, the Italians were the second wave. The Italians were the ones who wrecked it for the Swedes. Every, 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 every place in Chicago, the story is who was here first, who came and wrecked it, and then who came, and who came next, right? Um, one friend of mine had written a book about South Shore, and he's this great line in it that every neighborhood is going to hell in one way or another depending on where you stand in relation to it. But Swedish, Swede drinking culture is very different too. I don't know if you've ever been, any of you have ever been to Sweden. Uh, you go into a restaurant there and there'll be beer, just bottles on the table. And you can just open it or not as you see fit. But they tax based on the alcohol content. So like if you, get, if you drink the 3% beer, it costs a kroner. You drink the 6% beer, it costs three kroners. You drink the 8% beer, it costs 10 kroners. Because it's the alcohol content that is the social detriment, not the beer per se. But Swedish drinking culture tended to be more uh, family at home oriented. They weren't as big on bars, and they definitely weren't as big on like public drinking. They didn't have the beer garden tradition because of the weather in the old country. So that's the extent of what I can bring about the Swedes of Highwood. Um, I'm sure that the Highwood people here from the historical society know way more than I do about it. I'm the drink guy. You know, we, One more? We get three bars, three 1907 in Highwood that because 
the beer that made Milwaukee famous. But I'm delighted to talk with anybody who wants to come on up and continue the conversation. And meanwhile, let the rest of y'all get back to watching the hockey game and enjoying yourselves. And once again, thanks to Wilma and Santis for hosting. Thanks for y'all inviting me. Thanks for listening. That was fascinating. Oh, thank you.